Welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! My name's Richard. I'll be your host for spooky time, which is a strange time. A strange time of years. Everything gets darker. Everything kind of gets greyer. Everything kind of gets duller. You can no longer hear the little humming of the bees going from flower to flower. Unless, of course, they were maybe in some kind of protective gear as maybe they were in some kind of suit or maybe even in some kind of like space suit. In fact, let's take the bees away from buzzing about the garden in the darkness and actually let's lift them well above the stratosphere, well into the atmosphere, potentially into space um, and see where they go, see what they do, see what they pollinate and see what they bring and see what they work as and see what they achieve. Um, And we're not talking beehives. We're talking more kind of like, you know, a collection of beehives, almost like an apiary. And if we're going to be speaking to somebody about bees in space and apiaries, then there is only one person we can speak to, and that's Connie Vogelman, who's here to talk about apiaries. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I really loved that transition, too. It was very smooth. Although I will actually note that our bees are still buzzing away in the backyard. It's about 80 degrees right now today, uh, and so they are still going strong. but yes, happy happy to be on the show. Happy to talk about you know life, the universe, and everything, and also about apiary. Eventually, because the rule is when we talk when we talk bring anybody on to, on the show, we um we eventually get around to talking about the game. <clears throat> but um, but this must all be new to you. Yes, yes, hundred percent. This has been very very new. It's been sort of an interesting experience. I mean, as I've talked about. I know we'll get to the game later, but, you know, Apiary is very much my first design. Um, as we're speaking today, today is the official first pre-order day. And as you know, Stonemeyer sort of uh, oftentimes they just drop their products. So it's, you know, silence, 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 silence. And then all of a sudden the game drops. And so it's been a very interesting experience for the last couple of years. Um, you know, I tend to be very introverted. I don't have a very big social media presence. I certainly mm. don't do interviews and conversations like this. Like that's not yeah. at all part of my life and my background. And so all of a sudden when the news of Apiary dropped, uh, things changed a little bit. And I, I um, did reach out to Elizabeth. So I um, have been playtesting games with Elizabeth for the last few years. Uh, mm-hmm. We both live in the DC area. And I was like, hey, Elizabeth, can you, you know, help me help me navigate this a little bit? Because this is just all completely new. And so she's been helping me make a few connections. And that's been wonderful. Because when I spoke to when I spoke to Elizabeth, Wingspan was a thing. It wasn't the thing that it was kind of today, but it was a thing. And there was a big there was a big buzz around it. But at the time, they were working in DC. They were working for the government, I think, at the time. Um, so this was all kind of like uncharted. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know it was going to end up, you know, Wingspan. Famously, there's a there's a soap opera in the UK called Coronation yes. Street, and Wingspan, Wingspan was on the table. And it's kind of like that's where we go from. So you're talking about coming from a place where you're kind of not comfortable about kind of 
talking with people. So what is your kind of your background? Where 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 are you, where are you from originally, I guess? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I actually grew up in South Dakota, um, mm. which is not uh, kind of in the middle part of the United States. There's not really a whole lot there. Not too many people actually leave from South Dakota. Um, but I came to the East Coast first for undergrad and then for grad school. Um, and so I'm, I'm a lawyer. My day job is as, as an attorney working for the government. Uh, right. I, do, I do grants law, um, right. which is very um, kind of nose in a book academic style, uh, you know, legal work, basically interpreting statutes and regulations and trying to help the agency get, get grant funds out the door in a way that is legally sufficient. Um, and so that kind of work, obviously, D.C. is a um, good place for that kind of work. So I moved here right after grad school. That was about almost 10 years ago uh, at this point. And lucky for me, D.C. also has a very good board game community. Uh, yeah. So when I first came to D.C., I just started joining all these meetup groups and meeting board gamers. Uh, and there's also a really excellent game design community here as well. There's a lot of really, really great designers. And so as I got more and more into the hobby and then more and more into game design later on, it ended up being just about the perfect place to be. The only thing I know about South Dakota and North Dakota was um, <laughs> when I was, when the podcast was starting to, to grow and I had my target of basically having at least one download in yep. every right. single, every single state of America. And I don't know what it is about North Dakota and South Dakota if you know if you all don't have wi-fi or whatever or if you have to get your podcasts like delivered on eight tracks or whatever it is but i eventually i think i eventually had to put a call on social media to say i have got 50 states yep, <laughs> or whatever yep. i need like i don't know a couple more and i need north dakota and south dakota and they've always kind of been quite quite but it sounds to me like the it wasn't like you moving to dc was the catalyst for you getting involved in board games. It was a case that you had already been in kind of the cardboard arena. And yeah, it was just yeah. an additional thing. Absolutely. Well, so first of all, real quick, I'm going to take a, a real quick detour into the Dakotas, if you don't mind. Yes, please. Um, there's a few things you need to know about, about the Dakotas. One, South Dakota is the better Dakota. And everyone in South Dakota <laughs> will tell you that. And there's more people in South Dakota than North Dakota, so it must be true. Right. Uh, second of all, the capital of uh, South Dakota, it's spelled P-I-E-R-R-E. -E. It is pronounced Pier, like P-I-E-R, right. is one syllable. Do not pronounce it two syllables. You are incorrect. Okay. And third, <laughs> if you ever are driving through South Dakota and you're driving for miles and miles and miles and you're bored out of your mind, stop at Wall Drug. It will be the kitschiest experience of your life. But by the time you've been driving through 300 miles of cornfields and, you know, cattle lands and everything, you will be glad of the distraction. So anyway, that's my South Dakota tangent. What's it, <laughs> what's it famous for? Because they're not, is it not like you get like, there's like, they call this, was it, there's the, the, the dairy state and then there's like Chicago, which is like the windy city. So what's Dakota famous? Because you mentioned cornfields there. So is it yeah. famous yeah. for miles and miles of cornfields? Yeah, so it's it's actually sort of split uh, east west. So the eastern side of the state is mostly South, uh, mostly corn uh, and soybean fields. The mm. western part of the state is is much drier and it's mostly cattle. the The biggest attraction of South Dakota is Mount Rushmore. That's sort of the thing that everyone knows about South Dakota. But that was almost four hundred miles away from where I grew up. I grew up in the absolute opposite part of the state. So <laughs> I can't, I always I always forget actually how kind of big America is. Because yep. I, 
where I am, you're only ever kind of like 60 miles away from the coast. Right. That's the, you know, the the furthest point, you know, I can, I can get, I can get to the coast literally within about 10 minute drive from here. I can be staring out at the sea. In fact, I lie because I can look out my window and I can see like the fourth rail, the, the fourth rail, the fourth road and the Queensferry crossing, which are three busy, three busy bridges which cross like the fourth. So I'm I'm not that far from the coast. So when you're saying, oh, it takes us a couple of hours, because we measure like, I've heard of people like that drive a couple of hours to get to work in America. And I'm just like, that, why would you even, why would you even do that? But that's, yeah, and that's I, I, cer- I certainly agree with that. I've known a lot of people who have had really brutal commutes and a lot of it's obviously just driven by housing prices, but I still can't, I, I still can't fathom. I mean, it's just so much, it's so much time, especially if you're sitting in a car too. I mean, because obviously public transportation around here is not great. And so a lot of times if you have your two hour commute, you're sitting in traffic on the freeway for most of it, which sounds kind of like my own personal version of hell. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the board game side of things, where yes. did that, where did that start? Was that kind of like, if I have to look at another cornfield, I'm going to lose <laughs> control. So you went and played Catan instead <laughs> no no so I, I actually started, so i grew up playing a certain number of of games i mean my mm. family were big knuckle players and so that was the big thing that we would always do when my family got together we also played a lot of cribbage growing up and we had a, a game called yahtzee yes. um no, sorry a game called kismet i misspoke that is a basically a variant of yahtzee a slightly more complicated variant of yahtzee that we played a lot of um but i didn't play games a lot in you know in high school and college and then when i was in law school i had a friend who invited me over for dinner and, and a board game and I was like board games like yeah I don't know how old are we like what are we doing yeah. and that yeah. game was Settlers of Catan and it just launched a revolution for me I mean I just instantly dove in head first I started a board game club at my law school we had about five games that we just played over and over okay. and over and over again um, and it very quickly became my favorite hobby and then again when I moved to DC I just continued on <laughs> And what, what, okay, so what were the five games then? <laughs> uh, so let's see. So we had Pandemic. We had Settlers right. of Catan. Uh-huh. We had Carcassonne. Uh-huh. We had Small Grid. Oh, oh my God, Small World. Right. And we had Power Grid. And those were the ones that just got played again over and over and over and over again. That's a, that's a really, really kind of solid foundation. Yeah. Because you've got kind of like your Euro in there with like Power Grid. Yep, yep. Then you've got like your area control and then you've got kind of like resource management and crisis management with kind of pandemic. It's like, um, it reminds me of that, um, here's a tangent for you, in Goodwill yeah. Hunting where the maths professors are talking and they're talking about, do you remember this guy who they basically had a basic maths book um, and that's all he had and from there he extrapolated some kind of like amazing maths. So I'm just imagining that from the basis you that give you a firm understanding of lot what an awful lot of kind of like board games out there would kind of would kind of offer i would guess yeah absolutely and i don't remember too much about the thought process about you know who picked up which game when i mean i think we were just kind of checking best of lists at the time because no one knew much about it um mm-hmm. and then we added agricola a little bit later as well and then yeah. all of a sudden you know that kind of got us into i mean power grid's pretty heavy but agricola obviously got us into that sort of slightly heavier gaming and um, you know, kind of worker placement as a genre um, as well. So, but yeah, I hadn't really thought about that before, but that is really, I think, a pretty good assortment of games. If you're, you know, just getting into the hobby to sort of see what some of the different mechanisms are. Yeah, I know that uh, 
I, I, out of those ones, I think the last one I played was Power Grid because one of my friends they've got like basically a batter and bruise copy of Power Grid that you know they'll bring along every kind of couple of months to the games club and we'll be playing that because they love it so much and it's one of the games that's like it's kind of like a step up from a lot of games. I don't. It's like I think with Pandemic, I think Pandemic's one of these games that you go back into. And you'll play again, and then you'll go, "Wow, I realize, I, re- I realize why I kind of like that so much because it is, it's one of the most ridiculously kind of hard board games for there. I would never personally put somebody who was new to board games in front of Pandemic because I think it would be enough for them to go, "What well, I've lost." And it's like, "Yes, you've lost." And then what happens now? Well, that the world is wiped out, and that's you dead, and we have to kind of start again. And there's kind of like that. That kind of kind of like frustration. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking speaking of difficulty, though, I actually had the opportunity to go to the pandemic national finals a few years ago with my um, with my partner David. This was before um, uh-huh. before COVID, uh, but we entered this tournament at Gen Con and kind of worked our way through the different through the different levels, and we actually made it to the national finals. We didn't we didn't make it to the world championship. We got knocked out at that point. That was a difficult. That one it was it was interesting because they had all the decks seated. So they had all of the city cards and all of the, the infection oh. deck and everything seated. And so they'd call it out bingo style. So you were basically, everyone was playing the exact same game. So your um, the decisions that you made, you know, determined when you won or lost. Um, and wow. in our case, lost. <laughs> so it's like basically like mitigate, how are you going to mitigate the following yep. kind of circumstances? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and what actually happened to us, and I think this was actually really interesting because it really does get into the metagame, mm. is in the, the first rounds of the game, we were competing to cure the diseases the most quickly and win that way. Yeah. And in the final round, they had upped the difficulty to the point where I don't think anyone actually cured the diseases. And so it was basically whoever had done the most damage control survived the longest. And I thought that was really interesting. That was sort of, again, it gets into this metagame. You know, if you're going into this tournament, are you going to try to survive or are mm-hmm. you going to try to win? And those are kind of lead you to make two different sets of decisions. I'm getting I'm getting the sense here, and you can you can obviously correct me um if you think I'm wrong, but you, you sound like a pretty kind of analytical person. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's correct. I come from, I mean, before I went to law school, I did science and undergrad and mm-hmm. sort of come, come from that background and, and very much bring that into game design too. I mean, that's, that's definitely kind of the background um, that I'm coming from. So, yeah. I think so that's accurate. I kind of like an eye, I kind of like an eye to detail. In fact, I guess for your day-to-day job, I mean, what you're going to be looking over is if people are making kind of certain applications and you're checking against kind of like the statute books and things like that, you're having to look at well, yeah. how how can we do the interpretation of that? How can we how can we use what you've given me with what we've got here and make that kind of kind of work yep. together? Yeah, basically. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways it's actually. I mean, it's probably more boring, but it's a, in a way it's very similar to a lot of the kind of puzzles of of playing games and designing games too. Is this very attention to detail and sort of looking at the pieces and trying to fit them together because you have to be both incredibly detail oriented. I mean, if a statute says may versus shall or a comma mm-hmm. versus, a, you know, semicolon or something like that, that can make a really big difference. Um, but at the same time, you still have to kind of keep that broader purpose in mind. I mean, what's the purpose of the statute? What's the purpose of the regulation? Mm-hmm. Because you need to follow both the letter and the spirit of whatever it's telling you you're supposed to be doing. Have you had like, um, 
Have you had like eureka, eureka moments in your job where you've been working away at something and you've kind of went, right, well, based on this, 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 and this, you can get all of this, you know, where you've kind of worked through kind of like the various statutes and the various laws and actually said, well, based on if we do take it this way, then you'll get all of this. But if we take it the other way, you'll only get so much instead. I think it's more fuzzy than that, in all honesty. I wish there were more eureka moments, um, but mm. I think a lot of it's just you and because remember it's also government too so you and 10 other people are in a room and everyone's kind of bickering about the you know individual interpretation and you're trying to okay well maybe if we argue a b c d e we can get to one Mm. interpretation if we go f g h i j we can do another interpretation and here's the risks associated with the first batch and here's the risk associated with the second batch and it's always some combination of litigation oversight (laughs) you know some of our oversight organizations uh, you know, Washington Post or, you know, negative press coverage, congressional reprimand. And so oftentimes you can kind of pick your poison in terms of which way is going to yield the most, which way is going to yield the types of risk that you're more comfortable with accepting, because there's almost never a path that's zero risk, short of not doing anything, which of course defeats the whole purpose of what we're doing. <laughs> so does your job sometimes become like some kind of big, huge kind of logic puzzle at some point yes. where you're kind of drawing from five or six kind of different sources in order to kind of come up with a solution for it then? Oh, 100%. And oftentimes they're telling you opposite things too. I mean, and that's the biggest problem is when they're all kind of pulling you in slightly different directions and you're sort of trying to thread the needle through all of them. So. Or you're coming in with, with an understanding that maybe Congress meant one thing and they said another thing. And so you're trying to figure out how do we get to what we know the interpretation is supposed to be. Um, while still dealing with the actual language that's in front of us. So are you, are people like applying directly for kind of like, are people in organizations applying directly for kind of like money when you mention grants? Because to me, a grant is have some money. Is yeah. that, is that what, where you're kind of working in? Or is it kind of like bigger organizations saying like the, the EPA are asking for several hundred million dollars in order to build a dam to protect beavers and here's the legislation what's going to allow that or prevent that from kind of happening yeah so the way that usually works in the u.s at least is we'll get the agency will get some amount of funding from congress you know uh-huh. here have a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars or whatever it is and it's for organizations you know that meet a certain definition for mm-hmm. a certain set of purposes and so a lot of the funds that we give out are go to states and then the states kind of redistribute them within the state. And so you'll do some kind of a formula program where each state will get a certain amount of money depending based on their population. And then um, it'll go to particular organizations within that state. Sometimes it'll go directly not to nonprofit organizations or for-profit organizations sometimes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It really depends on the statute. And then those entities, whoever are eligible will apply directly to the agency for funding. Wow. <laughs> but I guess you've also got to be apolitical throughout the process as well. Is that if if you know you have to if the law says that this person definitely deserves money and you're like, well, I don't know if they should really kind of have that money. But if it says, I guess you have to kind of like say, well, by the law, um, by the way they've applied and the legislation that they've passed, they ha- they have the right to kind of get this funding regardless of where I think they stand on kind of like the political spectrum as well. Oh, absolutely. It, it ends up being very apolitical. A lot of it's done through like a merit review process. So you'll get experts in whatever that industry is and whatever that field is, and they will oftentimes review the applications anonymously. Mm-hmm. So they'll take some of the identifying information out and they'll all give them a score. 
And then if the scores vary too much, they'll bring in other merit reviewers. And then oftentimes you're basically awarding funds based on their score. And so it does tend to be, I think, my experience with the process is it does tend to be a pretty just process in terms of who's getting funding. And it, it does oh, tend to be pretty cool. apolitical. And that's actually a reason why I like it too, is because it obviously to some extent it matters what administration um, is in charge, but it matters yeah. a lot less in this area than in an awful lot of other areas because grant money still comes in, grant money still goes out. Some of the priorities change a little bit, but I think at the end of the day, you can still say like, Hey, we moved the ball forward a little bit. We got this mm -hmm. money out the door. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, mm -hmm leave work and feel pretty okay about yourself or about, you know, your life. <laughs> so I guess the question is, is when it came to, when it came to the, like the board game design, what moved you from being somebody who was happy to move pieces around a board to being somebody to sat there and went, well, what happens if it moves two spaces forward instead of back? Or what happens if this goes here instead of there? And kind of ended up with you kind of designing your first game. Yeah. So I admit that I sort of stumbled into it. Um, so I had never really thought about designing games. You know, I really liked playing games. I really liked analyzing games, you know, having sort of discussions about what works, what doesn't work, why it does, why it doesn't, you know, that was sort of very much a part of my game group and part of what we, we did and why we enjoyed games so much. Um, and then my um, partner, David had an idea for, for a game <laughs> and I offered to help him in a very supportive capacity. I was like, okay, I can help you prototype. I can help run play tests. Like I can do some of, you know, I'll, I'll help. Mm. And that effort crashed and burned. Um, <laughs> we have very different design styles and very different styles on, on really every single part of the process. So we made it like two or three months and then it kind of imploded. Um, but that was enough to just absolutely give me the design bug. And I was like, oh my God, I really enjoy doing this. Like this is a it's a new area of the hobby. It's something I'd never considered before. It's a slightly different decision space, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I just really fell in love with design work. Like I just absolutely love it. It's just one series of problems to solve after another, after another, after another. And I absolutely love being in that space. So that's how it got started. It's kind of strange to me that you go from a, a day job of having to kind of solve problems, analyze information, and then maximize that data to present a result to then going home doing the same doing thing pretty much exactly the same thing what okay what because you've mentioned david a couple of times what yep. what was david's game about let's give him his five minutes sure so, <laughs> so i we never really had much of a theme for it mm -hmm. i will comment that both he and i are mechanics first game designers mm -hmm. um but it was a run. It was basically a rondelle game. Um, it was you were moving your pieces around a rondelle. Every action that you landed on was kind of a very typical type of action spot. You know, build a thing, get resources, do that kind of stuff. The sort of interesting shtick or kind of the twist to that game was that you also had a player board, sort of scythe or terra mystica style or something like that that you were taking pieces off of. And uh -huh. when you put the took your pieces off the board you would both increase the production strength or the strength of that underlying action, but then you would also put your pieces onto the rondelle. You would put them onto sort of the outside edges of the rondelle. Uh -huh. And then every time you or other people landed on spaces, different things would happen depending on whose pieces and which pieces were on that space. So it was sort of like a, a passive income and kind of interactive mechanism um, that was associated with those pieces. So I actually think the underlying design was quite clever. And I think that there was, I, I think that it could have been a, an interesting game had we uh, continued continued with the process because um, it was it was very simple but it had some really very interesting decisions because you're looking at your rondelle and you're like oh man if I land on the space 
I'm going to give somebody else some really good benefits, but this is like the action that I want to do, or this then mm. allows mm. me to put one of my pieces out on the board. So I'll be getting this passive income. So I think it was actually a, it was actually kind of a, a clever design. So maybe, maybe one day we'll pick it back up. You never know. Was it, because sometimes games, people say that, well, the game, the game works, but it's missing a certain thing like that little yeah. kind of like that last kind of five to 10%, which pushes it from like playing a game. And sometimes I, pl- I play quite a few games and sometimes the game feels like work Yep. because yep. you're playing through it. And it's kind of like, well, I, I can't really see my motivation. I don't know where I'm going with this. Yes. I'm scoring points, but at the end of the day, it's almost like I am sticking figures into the top of an Excel sheet and I'm looking at the result that's coming down the bottom and I'm not really able to influence the columns in any way. So it just, I just, I feel like I'm, I'm at work, I'm going through a process in order to get points at the end and that's it. You know, there's nothing else that's kind of a, kind of affecting it. Um, Do you, do you think it would have been better if you'd put a theme in? I mean, we, we tried a couple of different themes. I mean, we did, we did have a couple of themes. We mm-hmm. had sort of a space exploration, you know, going, trying to launch a rocket, going to space. We had mm-hmm. kind of a generic agriculture theme that we tried. Um, you know, again, the effort didn't last all that long. I do think the theme can be, can be really important. Um, you know, I wish I could quantify how to get that, you know, X factor, you know, that last five or 10%, I would imagine if anyone uh-huh. truly had it figured out, you know, <laughs> they would be uh, sitting, sitting pretty, um, and I also think it's interesting too how you know two people can look at the same game, um, and you know so for instance I've been playing a lot of Earth this year as a lot of people have, and I really yeah. I really enjoy it. It's um, for folks who haven't played it, it's a tableau builder. You have kind of a follow mechanism, so on everyone's turn you're just getting kind of a drip 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 of resources. And in some ways, it doesn't matter what they do because every action is good. Every action you get to follow and you get to do something. And for me, I find that to be a very very satisfying puzzle. Um, but there's a couple of folks in my game group who are just like this is a spreadsheet. I'm looking at a spreadsheet. I'm in a spreadsheet. I'm not getting any enjoyment out of this. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that you can have a game that strikes two people who otherwise have very similar game interests just completely differently on that kind of X factor and on that fun factor. I think it, I think games can tick different people's boxes. And I think that expectation yep. is definitely one of them. And I think that it's interesting that you're working with Jamie because if one thing... Jamie has always been good to, and we're going to talk about you, Jamie, and you might be listening in or not. And I've said this to Jamie himself, but he is very, very good at giving the impression that a game is one thing when it can end up kind of being another. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've gotten that that impression, but I will say, I I do think Jamie is very, very good at finding that fun factor and really honing in on that. And I'm sort of thinking through the, development of apiary and a lot of the little tweaks that we made kind of fairly late in the process that I think from a design perspective, I don't think are all that core or all that fundamental to the game are the things that everyone's like, and this is the thing that takes it over the edge, which I think is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess for me, when I, I mean, and I have, I've mentioned this to Jamie directly, Scythe is always the big one that kind of looks like a war game, but is actually a Euro game. And exp- yeah. Expeditions is like, Again, it's like the follow-up to Scythe and everybody's going, I was expecting big stompy robots. It's like, well, there are big stompy robots. It's just that you're st- you're just doing another kind of a another kind of a, a Euro kind of game thing. Um where in terms of the journey for Apery, 
because I am very, very surprised. I mean, I, I know there's a few games based around kind of bees, but bees in space. Now, when I, even though I'm saying bees in space to you just now, in my head, I'm doing the Muppet Show pigs in space thing instead. <laughs> so I'm going yeah. bees in space. Um, but where, I mean, you say that you brought in the mechanics first and then the theme, but I'm just wondering how, where the point did you go? Could you, did you bring in the bees? Because it sounds fascinating to me that you would go. I, I'm wondering almost like if you kind of like got like a bag of words and then just <laughs> stuck the words in the bag and then rummaged around and says like the, the first one is the first word space. Okay. And the second word is exploration and then the third word is bees and that's that's what we're going with and so you know yeah well, so the funny thing is there's actually design tools uh online like if you're a game designer and i can't remember them off the top of my head but there's one or two that actually do that that will put a theme and a mechanism together and it's basically a random number generator and you can do it as a design exercise you know come up with a game that's you know i, I don't know a tableau building game about you know whatever um and and it'll give you that that kind of design challenge i will say though as far as apiary is concerned though the bees were part of it actually from the beginning um you know i had basically a single conversation um about the game uh, when we we're talking about the concept of workers aging and dying and wouldn't uh, it be cool if workers aged and died and then i had been doing some research um to start keeping bees myself um which i started doing a couple of years ago and it just sort of instantly clicked. So as much as I very much consider myself to be a mechanism first designer, yeah. um, the B part of Apiary was there from the very first prototype. And actually the funny thing too, is the name Apiary actually probably came about three weeks in and just stuck from then until, until the final game, which I think is really funny. Um, the space part was added much later. So the space part was added during, uh, uh, development with Stonemeyer, um, or I guess technically right before. Basically, Jamie and I had been talking about the game mm. a little bit. I had brought it to Stonemeyer Design Day back in 2021. Wow. Jamie and I got talking um, talking about the game a little bit after that, and he basically said, "Look, I think the game's interesting, but a it needs a little bit more work, and b mm. um, I'm a little concerned. You know, Honey Buzz just came out. That is also a tableau building work replacement midweight yeah. B game. Yeah." yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of throw out there too that I think there were some aspects of the game that just I don't know how well it worked when it was the bee theme. I mean, for instance, you're recruiting other bees to your hive to help give you a special abilities. You're building pretty elaborate technologies. I mean, those aren't very consistent with modern day bees. So you can kind of squint a little bit and get there. Yeah. Um, but but Jamie was like, "Would you consider moving it to space?" And I jumped on that idea. I thought it was great. I really I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm a super yeah. nerd. I'm in. And I absolutely loved it. And I was like, oh, this is great. It solves design problems. It gives you extra flexibility. It'll certainly make the game unique. Um, so then I did a prototype or two um, kind of in consultation with Jamie, with him sort of providing some advice uh, with the B theme or with the space theme. And then that was the final version that I submitted to Stonemaier was a bees in space version of, of Apiary. But back backpedaling a little bit here. Yes. <laughs> you rock up at a board game kind of playtesting design event, knowing that Jamie Stegmeyer's going to be there, and you've just oh, here's my game. I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. I know of, 
I know of a lot of designers that probably would be like, nah, I'm not doing that. What happens if, you know, what happens if they think I'm daft? But how how far was how far was the game in development? You mentioned like Jamie had a, con- like a couple of concerns and he had some suggestions for it, but how far along the kind of the design path was that copy that you presented to them then compared to the final version that's kind of going on sale today? Basically. Yeah, yeah. So, and and by the way, I wish I, I wish I could present myself as having having quite the the self confidence uh, that you did there, and I will say that's definitely not the case. Um, I had been actually doing some blind playtesting. I was a lead playtester yeah. for Stonemaier um, a few years back. I actually messaged Jamie on Board Game Geek, and I was like, I have feelings, I have opinions about Tapestry. Like, let me playtest the next expansion. And so he actually looped us in um, as a, as blind playtester. So I wasn't a one hundred percent stranger. Not that I'd really worked with him or talked with him much, but at least oh. you know he maybe recognized the name. And then I actually talked with Elizabeth because um, I'd been playtesting with her, Elizabeth Hargrave, before design day. And I was like, hey, Elizabeth, what should I do? What do you think? How do you think I should go about this? And she just said, hey, send Jamie an email. So I had sent him an email a week or so ahead of design day, basically saying, I have this game. I think it would be a really good fit for Stonemeyer. Would you consider it? You know, I proofread the email 5,000 times. I hit send and then I hit unsend and then I hit send and then I hit unsend. Um, I have one of those like send delays, <laughs> but did ultimately send him a message. And so I think he was maybe on the lookout for it a little bit more at design day because of that. Um, did, you take the, fair- did you take the email into work and get the other lawyers <laughs> to check it oh, and just say, no, does, this, no. does this look... <laughs> What you, what, and it's like we're doing the grant funding here for for um, for this area of Michigan for the Wildlife Conservatory. Well, yeah, but could you have a look at this email that I'm about to send, please, <laughs> quickly? Oh, then then it would have never gotten sent. It would have ended five pages longer and um, been full of lots of legalese. Um, but <laughs> you could have ended up with a grant of a couple million dollars <laughs> accidentally. And get a check sent through the mail and say, "Here's your here's your money for your B project," and you're just like going. Oh. I think they okay. would uh, violate a few a few uh, relevant ethics requ- uh, regulations. But anyway, um, the the version that I brought to Design Day was getting to be as far along as I think I knew how to take it at that point in time. Mm, yeah. You know, I think I had a core loop that was pretty fun. People were enjoying it, um, both at my playtest group before Design Day and then actually at Design Day. And all the feedback I got was, "I'm interested in this game. This game is really fun. I want to play it again. I want to yeah. see where it goes." I do think though, and, and, you know, so you had a lot of the same, the core mechanisms of the workers aged, they died at that point in time in the final version, they hibernate now because it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more positive. Yeah. Um, but most of the actions are largely the same. I mean, you have your sort of tableau building element of the game and you're buying a lot of hex based tiles, you're putting them into your hive. It's very much a combo game. So you're flipping over a lot of or uh, you're getting tiles over the course of the game, you're basically trying to break the rules in one way or another. And I think that's really kind of a core functionality of the game is that one person might be breaking, quote, you know, breaking the game in direction A and somebody else is breaking the game in direction B. And that's really what the game is about. And I think that kind of core has very much stayed intact. You know, some of the tiles that I brought to Design Day are basically the exact same as the tiles that are in the, the final game. Where the game really got better, though, during during development was kind of around the edges we really smoothed off a lot of rough pieces, a lot of rough yeah, edges. Yeah. We added some multi-use cards that I think are one of the best parts of the game. They were just, I think, single use when I brought them to design day and now they have three different uses, which is, I think, really makes the kind of some of the strategic decision-making a lot better. And then we also just added a lot of really nice touches. So like, 
For instance, in the final version of the game, every strength four worker has a unique, every time you place a strength four worker, wherever you place it, you get some kind of a really cool bonus or benefit. And that is something that I think really, really elevates the game from like, this is pretty fun to like, oh my gosh, I'm really loving this experience. So, so how does a, how does a round play? I mean, how what what would you do in a what would you do in a round? What's the main kind of mechanics that you're you're playing? Yeah, well, it's a worker placement game. There's a bumping mechanism, so it's like a um, like Charterstone or Euphoria. So no no worker placement spaces ever blocked. Mm-hmm. The sort of key mm-hmm. shtick or the key you know innovation, if you want to call it that, in Apiary, is that most of the workers start out at a strength one, and every single time you retrieve them or they come back to you, they age one level. Um, so they age from a one to a two to a three to a four. Right. Okay. All of the all of the actions on the board depend on the strength of the bee. So if you place a strength three worker, you can do slightly better stuff than if you place a strength two worker. Okay. Um, every single time you have a strength four worker, whenever that worker gets bumped off the board or you retrieve that worker in any way, it comes back to you. It hibernates, and you lose the worker, and you basically fill a spot in this little hibernation comb. That not only tracks the end of the game, but it also gives you a little bit of a bonus and there's a little bit of an area control aspect of it. That's your kind of game timer. So a really big part of the game is kind of manipulating your workers, which worker you're placing where, uh, are you getting bumped by other players? Can you circumvent that one, two, three, four hibernate sequence? There's a lot of abilities that allow you to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you get basically extra strength for placements out of your workers? Um, And then how do you kind of manage that pool of workers because you always need some workers, but you don't necessarily need all of them at any time. So you're really kind of managing that inflow and outflow of your workers. The aging stuff, the last time I've seen the aging stuff was on, well, on Friday, uh, uh, when I played I played Viticulture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Viticulture's kind of got a, a similar kind of aging process, whereas, you know, at the end of every single round, you, you age both the kind of the grapes and the wine that you've got. And then that in effect, allows you to either produce more expensive wine or kind of fulfill orders themselves. So, I that mechanic of I've very rarely seen that mechanic anywhere else. So the fact that it's also in kind of AP is pretty cool. As as yeah. as kind of as as far as I'm concerned, with um with it being kind of like the bees in space theme, was yes. it then a case of in terms of the illustration, um, was it a case of where well, we can just we can pretty much kind of do what we want? I mean, what or or were you kind of were you involved in kind of like how did you have discussions with? Were you involved in the discussions between with like Quanchai because it's I think it's Quanchai who Moria who's yeah. involved yeah. in. He's he's the they're the person that's kind of illustrated the game as well, and they're famous for doing. <sighs> I mean, dinosaur, the dinosaur, a million different games cut their teeth on kind of like catacombs originally. And mm-hmm. they kind of have always followed their, followed their work with kind of great interest. So when it came to the kind of the look and the feel of the game, was that something that you were involved in as well? Or did you just say, right, I'm just, I've done the mechanics. I'm just going to mm-hmm. leave you, you alone to kind of get on with how it looks. Yeah, no, I, I really was not involved much at all in in the art and in the final product. And obviously, and honestly, like I have no notes. I mean, I just I think it looks wonderful. I was mm-hmm. thrilled with how it all turned out. Um, but no, that was really coordinated um, by Jamie. You know, I was very very involved throughout the whole development process. I think Jamie has a really really great way of including his um, designers in the development process. It's a very collaborative effort. 
I always felt like I knew exactly what was going on. Um, I was always part of the decision-making on every single decision that was made. And even mm. if, you know, Jamie obviously has the, the final say um, as the publisher, but it was always a very collaborative process. But no, as far as, as far as the art was concerned, that was really very, very separate. And so I think there were one or two times when, you know, they came back with concept sketches and a couple of questions here and there. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how the bees were going to look, um, you know, things like that, how the worker worker bees mm -hmm. were going to look. Um, but no, for the most part, I was just, just involved with the, the design part of things. When was it you actually were able to see kind of like a kind of a final version of the game or a printed version of the game? And and, and when were you yeah. able to, have you played an actual, this is the other thing, have you played a final yes. version of the game yet? Yeah. I have, I have. Um, yeah, so I, I got my copy a few weeks ago, maybe two or three oh. weeks ago. And that was the first time that I had was able to actually play the final version of the game with the wow. fully finished components and that was that was a really really special experience but they were you know airmailed a copy in for me which i thought was absolutely wonderful it's serial number zero 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 which is extra wow. special um, okay. but i first got a, a good look at the art and the graphic design back in i believe it was april maybe it was february or so when the art came in and then a couple mm. months later that they added the graphic design and then i um, you know, they, they obviously, Stonemaier has a team of, of proofreaders, but I was involved in that process as well and was able to kind of look through all the files and offer suggestions on, you know, graphic design choices and where everything went and how things looked in the final wording in the rule book and things like that. So that was, it was, that was when it really kind of felt real because you could sort of see all the pieces together and you're like, holy moly, this looks really sharp. <laughs> Do you feel with it being a Stonemaier game and... I mean, you've got the, el well, I was going to say elephant in the room, but probably the albatross in the room that is wingspan. Do you, did you feel under, do you feel under pressure? I mean, and my reason, my thoughts behind this, because you better explain it to the lawyer, um, is that you could have taken Apiary and you could have taken it down a different route, which has gone through the crowdfunding route and mm -hmm. done the publicity and everything like that. I'm getting the I'm getting the feeling though from the conversation that we've had so far that if Stonemaier hadn't picked it up, um, it would potentially have gone, or you would have looked at another publisher. I don't think yep. Yep. taking it to crowdfunding is particularly some place that you would feel kind of necessarily have the kind of I guess wanting to kind of do it because taking to crowdfunding it takes so much energy it's just it's like yeah, a job yeah. nowadays it's like a, it's a secondary job by itself and it requires even if you're doing crowdfunding a kind of a lot of financial but i was just going to say in terms of it going out through the stonemeyer channel and with wingspan kind of being you know wingspan well not just wingspan <laughs> but you know the entire catalog that's there yep did you feel we're kind of like great he's publishing my game and then it's like oh they're publishing my game. Was there is there There's a bit a of internal that. pressure on yeah. your side to say, well, you know, what what are people going to think about it? There, there's a lot of pressure, and so just just sort of for for just to note, yeah, I was never going to go the Kickstarter route. That was something that I, I just never wanted to do. I mean, I mm. don't want to be a publisher. At least, you know, certainly that was something that I didn't want to take on in the Kickstarter context. But yeah, I mean, my my goal was to really get it ready for design day and then to start kind of pitching it from there. Um, that was that was sort of the goal. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, Wingspan obviously very much captured lightning in a bottle. Could yeah. not have had happened to better people. Um, it's also had really, really incredibly positive impacts on the hobby as yes. well, just in terms of bringing new people in and kind of really telling people that games can be for everyone. Um, 
but you know, it's, it's never going to be another wingspan. You know, I don't think that should be the target for any game that gets published by Stonemaier or otherwise, but it is, it is intimidating. You know, Stonemaier puts a lot of development work into all of their games. They do, you know, big print runs. They invest a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources into every game that they publish. And so I do think over the last couple of years, I've had all of these, these moments where I'm like, Oh my God, you know, what if it's a bust? What if everyone hates it? Um, and, you know, I think especially the last couple of weeks, you know, we've, they had early review copies out. And so I think at the time we're recording this, I think there have been nine or so reviews published, you know, from those those initial reviews. And I, I did definitely breathe a sigh of relief as they started coming in. And I'm like, okay, they like the game. Like, they like the game. This is good. Um, because I was just worried that, you know, what if what if Stonemaier makes this big investment and then the game gets totally panned? And obviously, I think you have to trust them to do their job. You know, they're very, very good at marketing. They're very, they have a very loyal following. They're very good at making really, really, truly phenomenal games. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot of pressure. I mean, coming in as a completely unknown game designer with an unknown game yeah. about kind yeah. of an out there topic, you know, how is it going to be received? And that's, that's scary. <laughs> Have you given yourself a rule that you're going to look at how all the reviews come in? Or because there's usually, there's usually two waves for, yep. for the reviews that go out for the games. I mean... I know that Jamie puts out kind of games to video reviewers because they need time to play the game and record the content. And then there's a secondary wave of kind of written reviewers and they take usually a little bit longer. And, um, you know, for instance, I've got, um, I've got my, my particular written review for expeditions (laughs) is going to be going to print instead of going onto the blog, um, which is kind of strange, but um, also interesting but um are you uh, yeah going back to my question are you are you going to be one of these people you're going to be scanning all the bgg reviews <laughs> or have you made a thing to say right okay it's going to be out there i just have to kind of let it let it kind of be out there because there are there are going to be some people who regardless of if you tick every single box that they've ever asked for plus all the boxes that they've asked to get drawn so you can tick them as well they're still not going to like or necessarily gel with the end product kind of thing. Of course. Yeah. And I mean, not, not, you know, one of the things Elizabeth said to me going into this is just to, you know, the mantra needs to be not every gamer is going to like every game and not every gamer is going to like my game. And I think that's something, I mean, I don't like every game that gets published, including some games that are objectively, truly excellent. So that's just, you know, we are in a field or an industry with an absolute wonderful assortment and array of options and so it allows us all to be very picky about what games we like about what games we keep in our collection and so on um but so far i have been watching all of the reviews and scouring all of the news i think for the sake of my own sanity i'm gonna have to figure out how to cut that down a little bit over time um just because that could become a full-time job in and of itself but I think especially, you know, because this is my first game and, and everything, mm. I certainly did not have the self-control to refrain from some of the the early impressions. But as I said, overall, it's been surprisingly positive. So I've been, been really happy so far. Is there, is this the first of many designs or is this, is this a kind of a, a kind of a wait and see kind of thing? I mean, you've, you're obviously, and this is early days, but you've had the first, the first debut albums out there. Yep. Yep. So there are going to be people that are going to be interested in that kind of the what they call the second the second difficult album. Um, going to be there's definitely more to come. Um, this is right. definitely not the only design. 
there's more to come. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about anything, but there will be more to come sooner rather than later. So, are we talking about are we talking about expansions, maybe, or different different games altogether? So, no expansions um, as of yet. Uh, we did pack a lot, a lot into the to, into the base game. You know, if uh-huh. there's interest and appetite, and if folks like the game enough, um, I'd certainly be very willing to do an expansion. But no, there are um, other completely different games in the works right now because one of the things if you know when i well the reason that we got introduced was that elizabeth emailed me and said you know i've got undergrowth coming out in november and i was like yeah this is after like undergrowth mariposas the fox experiment you know Mm -hmm. kind of wingspan one wingspan two wingspans three wingspan seven tokyo drift um (laughs) you know all the various kind of different versions Mm -hmm. and now they are kind of full-time in the business kind of mm-hmm. full-time board game designer is that is there part of you that's kind of like well i could i could take a little bit of slice of this action or is a bit of the you says well i'm quite happy at doing my job job and this could be something that i could be doing on on the site you know i think definitely for now um that's that's definitely i'm definitely more toward the latter you know i will admit I very much like the stability of a paycheck. Um, and as I said, I reasonably like what I do, um, yeah. you know, on, on a day job. I think, you know, making a living off of board game design really does require sort of a wingspan level hit or an incredibly yeah. high output, or I think some very, um, very big sacrifices to lifestyle changes. I mean, you yes. know, you hear of these designers who are living on, you know, twelve or $15,000 a year or something like that, which yes. one can do with the right set of circumstances. Um, I think as far as I'm concerned right now, I, again, I reasonably like my job. I like my paycheck. I like the, again, the stability that it provides. And, you know, the reality is, is that game design is not really an industry that allows one to live off it full time very easily. Um, you know, I think you'd have to, in order to really make that happen, I think you'd really have to, you know, bump up the MSRP of these games, probably two X where they are now. And that's just not something that the market's going to bear. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will mention, though, just as an aside, is Undergrove is absolutely excellent. Um, I've played a lot of prototype versions of it and some pretty pretty close to final versions, and it is it's an excellent game. I can't wait. I signed up for the launch notification and everything, and I will order it as soon as it's available. So I think it's a really excellent game. That's um, it's AEG that's doing that one. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've got um, yeah. There's there's a uh, there's a uh, I've done an interview with um a written interview with elizabeth um and that'll be coming out end of the month and there's going to be we're planning or have planned a podcast episode that's going to be appearing in probably the next four to six weeks as well um unless she goes leave me alone <laughs> or, she says, or she says it was 2019 since we last spoke it's not been long enough uh, <laughs> you know you could be a jinx she could bring me all kind of kind of crashing down what's it been like with the community though because I'm very, very aware that you've kind of gone from it's it's almost like being announced as, and you know, and the next star of the next Star Wars film is going to be, and then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, for, for a very, very, very small industry, but I will say, so far, it's been very welcoming. You know, there aren't mm. there aren't very many female game designers, at least not very many ones who do Euro games and who are yeah. incredibly established, yeah. and so. But so far, the community has been incredibly welcoming. You know, I've gone to a lot of unpub events over the last couple of years and, and things like that. And folks have always been incredibly, incredibly nice and incredibly welcoming. 
Um, you know, and I will say sort of throughout this process, I'm very aware that I absolutely hit the, hit the jackpot, you know, hit the lottery. I mean, no one goes into game design expecting to get a game signed with Stonemaier. Um, but you know, um, all, all you can do is kind of take the opportunities that come your way and, and try to do the most you can with them. So. Yeah. But I think it has to be a base level good. I hope so. I don't think he's going to look to the game and went, yeah, okay. Yeah, I suppose. We'll say, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> Bees in space. Sounds good. Let's let's yeah, let's, let's say that one. At least we could do bees in space. Should have been pigs in space, really, because then you could yeah, have like yeah. tied in the Muppets and had well, little kind of Miss Piggy miniature in space and the other ones. I mean, that would, that would be pretty cool. And I've also said too, I think if any if any creature is going to outlive us all, it's probably going to be the cockroach. But again, that would be a less a less inviting game. I cockroaches in space. I don't know. There's enough of these kind of like these Warhammer games where all the bad guys kind of look like half kind of cockroaches as well. I don't, I kind of like bees in space. I can deal with quite, quite happily. Yes, absolutely. Um, if people have listened along and they are interested in kind of finding out more and want to know where you exist on the internet webs, where do you exist on the internet webs? <laughs> yeah, so right now I'm just on, um, so I am on BoardGameGeek, I am monitoring the apiary pages, uh, I have an AMA thread, so if anyone ever posts to that and asks me a question, I'll, I'll see and respond to that. I'm also on, I guess, X we're calling it now, uh, yeah, I'm I know. Not- I know. Um, okay. Well, I'll call it. I'll continue to call it Twitter. I'm on both Twitter and Blue Sky, right. and in both cases, I'm Connie VDC, um, and will respond to basically any anything anything that's like relatively polite that anyone sends me on either of those platforms. I'm more than happy to respond to. So. We'll also put the links because Apiary is now available to um, is available to buy. All, yes. all across the kind of the all across the Stonemaier, the various sites that this man has. Yep, they have four. They have four distribution centers. Um, one in the US, one in Canada, one in the UK, and then one in I think it's in Australia. Yeah. Um, and so the apiary is available to buy directly from them from all four of those distribution centers. I know they also have some localization partners lined up with a couple of different languages as well, and I'm not sure the exact timeline on those, but those are coming. A, a little bit later and i think um well this depending on how quickly <laughs> how quick how quickly i get like working on this like a little worker bee um it's currently on offer as well so you can get it for a little bit of money off at the moment as well if you if you if you go ahead and you can pre-order it just now i think it's about 59 dollars or something at the moment but given how much is in the box i was really surprised that they were able to do that i think that sale runs through the 8th um but that I think is a really good a really good price, and then um, after that it will be also uh, in retail in mid to late November. That's pretty cool. Kind of retail. Yeah. Are you gonna? I mean, that must that's gonna be one thing where you walk into like a retail store and you're gonna be like that. There's my game, and, then, <laughs> and you're gonna be running out the place, getting the security guard to chase you, <laughs> so they can go. I was only trying to like show everybody my game that's now available in retail. Well, you don't want to do that. Because they, yeah. they, they might get the cops, <laughs> and then everybody, yes. would, and then everybody would be in trouble. Um, so there we go. We will, we'll, we will, of course, um, put all the links in the show notes so that everybody can see the bees and that we've got notes to show. And if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, just go to the internet webs and search for "We Are Not Wizards," and you will find us in all the different worn-out places 
worn out faces bright and early for the daily races um just go to <clears throat> go to wearenotwizards.co.uk for our blog go to wearenotwizards.com for the podcast or search for we're not wizards and you'll find us everywhere that there is internet there is us um <clears throat> And if you like what you've listened to tonight, then please go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or where you get your podcast of choice and drop us a rating or a review. If you are going to be dropping us a rating or a review, don't give us 10 stars because it makes us big-headed, but don't give us one star because it makes us cry. Give us something in the middle like a five because it's average and we're just a little bit average. But the person who's not being average is rather wonderful, rather fantastic, Connie Vogelman. Thank you very much for guesting. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There's only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Connie? No, we are not wizards. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Connie. Say goodbye, Connie. (laughs) Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, make something awful, or make honey in space. Get yourself an apiary. Until the next time. Goodbye. A wizard is never late. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.